Onward to Victory is proud to team up with WCScreens.com, where you can get custom screen printing and embroidery at wholesale prices. Just like you're fighting Irish on the gridiron, WCScreens.com is the gold standard of the industry. As reliable as the old button hook route, they ship nationwide and can save you or your company money. WCScreens.com. And on with the show. For episode number 57, we head appropriately back to 1957, to one of the greatest victories in the history of Notre Dame football. It was epic and served as the signature victory for an Irish head coach who, while not the most prolific in Notre Dame history, was a beloved one anyway. Buckle up those chin straps and get ready to pump those fists, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter, and thank you for joining the show today for episode number 57. I gotta tell you, I am really excited about the offering today. Not only will we have the opportunity to talk about one of the most famous Notre Dame football games in program history, we also get to chat about a head coach that, as I kind of mentioned in the show lead, isn't necessarily the most successful of coaches, but he was and still is certainly a very respected figure. So this is going to be pretty fun. But again, I want to thank you for tuning in. There's a whole lot of different places or avenues one can gather Notre Dame content these days. So I'm happy you are here with Onward to Victory. To give a quick teaser of the next episode, I will be bringing in a co-host so we can discuss the quote-unquote state of the program, if you will. It's going to be a good time and Yet another perfect segue as we head into the offseason slash into spring football season. So that episode will actually be released post-National Signing Day, which is February 2nd, just in case you were uh, otherwise unaware. So that is coming down the pike here. So we're really going to break down the new faces in the program as well as heavily discuss the returning ones too. But I'll have some more pertinent details coming soon. I want to give a big heartfelt Shout out to the Consensus All-Americans who helped the show out with donations and, as I like to say, keep the Subway alumni train on the tracks. Those folks are Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, Weston Painter of Fort Wayne, Indiana, and Will Fuller of Redondo Beach, California. And I will brag about these awesome people once again a little later in the show. And if you have screen printing or embroidery needs, head over to WCScreens.com. My pal Tony and the rest of his team will take good care of you and keep your company right and proper. We have some big plans for the show in 2022, and WC Screens looks to play a large role in them. So definitely support them any chance that presents itself. All right, everyone. So grab a locker room stool, circle around, and let's get started with talking about a gentleman named Terry Brennan. If that name doesn't ring a loud bell in your mind, well, it actually may ring a smaller one, if you will. 
Brennan just passed away this last September after having lived a long life of over 93 years. He was closely intertwined with Notre Dame for nearly his entire life. So allow me to explain. Terrence P. Brennan was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on June 11, 1928. He attended Marquette High School in Milwaukee, and he was an absolute stud. I know you may think this goes without saying, but it doesn't make it any less true. Brennan earned seven varsity letters in high school, so not only was he an all-conference football player and track and field sprinter, but, and I think this actually may be a show first here for you, but he also earned two varsity letters in ice hockey as well. We don't get to hockey much on the show, but yes, Terry Brennan was a very well-rounded athlete and tough as old shoe leather as well. It was actually marveled how good he was at football, despite his size, or lack thereof, I should say. As a freshman, he weighed 120 pounds. His parents actually thought him too small to play, but Terry insisted he could do it, and alas, he became a very good player for Marquette High School. But think about it, 120 pounds as a freshman. I stopped and thought about that for a minute, and you know, I think I actually crossed the 120-pound mark towards the end of like fifth grade. I was also kind of a big boy, a defensive lineman and offensive lineman at that time too, but still. So when Notre Dame approached Terry about playing in South Bend for the 1945 season, he took it and ran. Really, he was also fulfilling a bit of family legacy as well. Something that I did not realize or know about Terry was that his father also played at Notre Dame. Though it was mentioned briefly in his obituary, I'm not totally convinced this is something that was widely known. But Terry's father, Martin Brennan, was the backup quarterback on that famous 1909 Notre Dame team behind Donald Hamilton. So just to bring everything full circle here for Brennan, it was that 1909 team that his father was a member of that Notre Dame was first called, in print anyway, the Fighting Irish. This was, of course, after they defeated the University of Michigan for the first time in school history. And this was, of course, the game that made Michigan's head coach, Fielding Yost, so upset, they actually didn't put Notre Dame on the schedule again for over three decades. Not sure a lot of people know that, but... If you're curious more about that story, go back to episode 47 to learn more about it. But anyway, Terry would actually join his brother Jimmy, who was a year older than him, at Notre Dame. So after doing some pretty extensive digging, it can be concluded that Jimmy was actually a much, much better prospect coming out of high school. In fact, he was widely regarded as the finest athlete ever in the history of Marquette High School. And not for nothing, Jimmy actually also scored four touchdowns as a five foot seven, 155 freshman halfback during the 1944 season at Notre Dame. So just as a quick note, with World War II still raging in many parts of the world, well, that's really why Jimmy got to play as early as he did. But as the boys returned home from service, such as fellow halfback, Emil Sitko, head coach Frank Leahy, and of course other freshmen like his brother Terry, 
arrived on campus. Uh, Jimmy slid a little further down the depth chart, but he did end his career with 250 yards on 43 carries, which was a very respectable 5.8 yards per carry average. But despite not being quite as high profile as his brother Jimmy, Terry made a quick impact. He actually rushed for 252 yards, scored two touchdowns, and intercepted a pass on defense for the 7-2-1 Irish in 1945. His sophomore, junior, and senior years, the 1946, 47, and 48 seasons, well, the Irish were really good. How good, you may ask? Well, they, they never lost. <laughs> 26 wins, no losses, two ties. That good. And they won two national championships along the way. So just in case you were wondering about Terry and his physical stature, had he grown much since that freshman year of high school? Well, of course, as most of us do, he had actually grown into a 5'10", 170-pound frame. And he led the team in receiving in 1946 and 1947. And it was in the 1947 game against Army that Brennan breathtakingly took the opening kickoff back 97 yards for a touchdown to help the Irish to a 27-7 victory. And really, as you research that particular game, many thought it was his kickoff, again, right out of the gate, that put Army on ice that day. So in 1946, the year before, again against Army, Terry had a clutch interception that all but sealed a 0-0 tie and ensured Notre Dame the national championship that year. So, needless to say, Army was probably pretty stoked when Terry finally graduated. But he scored six touchdowns his sophomore year, 11 as a junior, and then two more as a senior. So, with 21 career touchdowns, and not to mention sharing the backfield and touches with some very talented backs, such as the aforementioned Emil Sitko, Brennan just had a nose for the pay dirt. And with over 1,700 rushing yards over his career, Coach Frank Leahy actually called Brennan his bread and butter runner. So yes, he was definitely one of Leahy's lads, or that group of guys who just dominated college football in the mid to late 1940s. So Terry graduated from Notre Dame in 1949 and was promptly hired to be Chicago Mount Carmel High School's head football coach. Impressively, while he was coaching at Mount Carmel, Terry actually earned a law degree from nearby DePaul University right there in Chicago. But on the gridiron, he won three consecutive city championships before his former head coach in Frank Leahy brought him back to Notre Dame in 1953 to coach the freshman team. While the 1953 Football Review didn't offer anything along the lines of the team's record, it was written, quote, It was largely through their efforts of learning the opposing team's plays each week that the varsity was so well-groomed for the big games on Saturday. According to freshman coach Terry Brennan, the 60-man squad was a typical Notre Dame freshman team. Big, fast, rugged, and containing a great desire to play football for Notre Dame in future years. End quote. But it was during the 1953 season that Coach Leahy's health began to take a bit of a turn. 
and it was deemed that the stress of coaching big-time college football was, I guess, rather poor for it. So he famously actually received his last rites from a priest during the 1953 season. So that is how dire his health seemed at the time. But he did resign in early 1954 after having made at least a bit of a recovery, obviously. But he also kind of later made it known that he didn't feel like he was wanted around campus anymore. So I'm sure somewhere in the middle, reality fell. But it was just a few days after Leahy's resignation that the college football world was shocked when Brennan was named the next head coach of Notre Dame. He was only 25 years old. So naturally, the question about his age and experience came up quickly and often, and he actually had the perfect response. When he was asked if he was too young to be Notre Dame's head coach, he replied, quote, Oh, I don't know. I'll be 26 in a few months, end quote. In the February 7th, 1954 issue of the Boston Globe, one of his high school teachers, Father Richard McGloin, said that, quote, he was the leader of his group, reserved, but not afraid. Oh, he's an Irishman, all right. Looks, talks, and acts like an Irishman. McGloin continued, we didn't lose a game in the years the Brennans were here. We were undefeated in 26 contests, end quote. So I guess maybe you can think about it this way. If we were to take Father McGloin at his word, and he is a priest, why wouldn't we, right? If Marquette was really undefeated the entirety of Terry's career, plus three undefeated seasons at Notre Dame, he would have only lost two games his entire high school and college career, both being his freshman year at Notre Dame. It's a whole lot of winning right there. But back to the story. It was quite something, though. In today's college football world, it seems absolutely mind-boggling to have a 25-year-old head coach of a big-time program. And it was just as unusual then, too. But one thing that Terry did have in his back pocket was his former coach's backing. After the announcement was made, over 2,000 Notre Dame students gathered around the Morris Inn on campus. Perhaps some of you have stayed there, but they gathered to listen to Leahy formally introduce Brennan as his successor at a pep rally on February 6, 1954. It was during this pep rally around the Morris Inn that Leahy said, quote, The coaching reins at Notre Dame will be in eminently strong and successful hands. This is the true spirit of Notre Dame. This is one of the things that makes Notre Dame the great university that it is. Leahy continued, In Terry Brennan, you have a truly all-American coach. Give him and his teams the support that you gave me and mine the last 13 years, and Notre Dame will always have representative football teams. End quote. So after Leahy left the podium, the man of the hour himself the young 25-year-old Terry Brennan stood up on stage and gave an address as well to the 2,000-plus students. He said, quote, A great man is leaving Notre Dame. There will be a tremendous void at Notre Dame when Frank Leahy goes. I'm going to try my very best to fill a part of that void. I'm hoping you'll help me. With your help, we'll do it. End quote. And... With that, the transition of power was made. 
one from a coach with four national championships in South Bend, the most recent being actually just the previous season, to one of his former players nearly half his age. That really would have been an interesting scene. So Brennan takes the reins for the 1954 season, and they had a very respectable campaign, finishing 9-1 and with a number four ranking to close out the season. The season actually began by handing the Texas Longhorns their first shutout in 77 games. And just as a quick aside to this particular game, some of the South Bend police, apparently not big football fans, refused to let Brennan into the stadium because they didn't believe he was the head coach because he was far too young to be Notre Dame's head coach. So he actually had to have someone vouch for him to gain entrance into Notre Dame Stadium that day. But the season did feature, this is the 1954 season again, a win over rival USC and was capped with a victory over SMU at the Cotton Bowl. And I'm sure even then there were a lot of national championship or bust folks who were dissatisfied with the season, but this was undeniably a real nice start to the Brennan era. So the 1955 team logged an 8-2 record and finished with a number 9 ranking. So 17-3 in his first 20 games as head coach. I mean, that's pretty good, I'd like to think, and I'm pretty sure you would agree with me. But, however, in 1956, the wheels spun off dramatically. The Irish, despite having the multi-talented Paul Horning under center at quarterback for his Heisman campaign, would go 2-8. And something that you probably don't hear much about this season. Now, sure, Horning won his Heisman in the fact that he was the only Heisman Trophy winner ever to belong to a team that had a losing season that year. That is definitely a bit of a historical nuance. But again, something that you might not hear about that 1956 season, that of those eight losses, six of them actually came by two scores or more. So it really wasn't like Notre Dame was just losing games they were actually kind of getting their doors blown off more frequently than not. So many people point to the fact that Notre Dame and the rest of the Big Ten had actually reduced the amount of scholarships per year from 45 down to 30. The concern of these schools was that academics was being put on the back burner, so to speak. So as Jim Walters, a Notre Dame graduate, wrote in his book called There Is No I in Lucky, the SEC schools really didn't bother with any scholarship limits. In fact, some of the schools in the SEC actually doubled down and added even more scholarships when the northern schools began to constrict theirs. So it was also during the 1956 season that Brennan's former coach, Frank Leahy, began to be very vocal with his dissatisfaction with not only the team, but his former player turned head coach Terry Brennan. It was on the eve of the USC game that season, which Notre Dame lost, that Leahy made his voice heard, stating, quote, It's not the losses that upset me. It's the attitude. What has happened to the old Notre Dame spirit? End quote. So this is probably a good time to mention that Leahy and Brennan were wildly different people. Leahy was notorious for his, let's call it, intensity. And he didn't cut his players a whole lot of slack. He was actually known to say, lads, there are only two ways you can mispractice. For your parents' funeral, or your funeral. 
Brennan, uh, as you probably picked up on, uh, was pretty laid back, perhaps in the eyes of his former coach, to a fault. But Leahy would have known this about Terry. I mean, he coached him as a collegian. But why was he so critical? I suppose there was the matter that the Irish hadn't won fewer than three football games in a single season for over six decades, dating back to the one-win, zero-loss, one-tie record of 1892. So there was a lot of frustration bubbling over. But Brendan once said after a tough loss that, quote, you try to win every game. If your best effort fails, what else is there to do but get ready for the next one, end quote. And he was not incorrect. In fact, by my estimation, Terry Brennan was probably one of the most even-keeled head coaches in Notre Dame's modern history. And it was indeed a drastic departure from the Leahy era. So Brennan goes into the 1957 season with a bit of what we now call the hot seat for a head coach. And the Notre Dame faithful were elated when the Irish began the 1957 campaign with four consecutive wins over Purdue, Indiana, Army, and Pittsburgh, especially after having lost to Purdue and Pitt the season before. So for the moment, the pressure on Brennan, at least externally, had been alleviated a bit. I mean, it was after this fourth consecutive victory that the Irish had risen all the way back to number five in the country. And this would have represented a very swift ascent as they spent the final seven games of the 1956 season out of the top 25 altogether. So you're going to have to forgive the uh, boat analogy here. I'm not sure it's going to land, but that's all right. So the ship sprung a leak the next week against Navy by way of a 20-6 loss. No worries, they stuck a cork in the hole and sailed on the next week against Michigan State. But they were roundly and decisively defeated 34-6 for touchdown loss. So another leak sprung. Now with no cork on hand, let's pretend the Irish had to stick their thumb in this hole. So now here we go. Boat's got a couple holes in it, but we got a cork, we got a thumb kind of patching it together. And while you may be thinking this is a crummy analogy... I am trying to relay just how perilous this situation was. With two straight lopsided losses, the ship was in danger of sinking. That's because when the captain, already dealing with a leaky boat, looked at the horizon, he saw a gigantic tidal wave approaching. Representing that wave was an away game in Norman, Oklahoma, against the Oklahoma Sooners, who hadn't lost a football game since 1953. 1953, four seasons earlier, they carried a 47-game winning streak into the contest and had been named the consensus national champions the previous two years. Having already suffered two consecutive losses, fairly lopsided losses at that the Irish season, and let's call it like it is, the entire Brennan era was in peril ahead of this November 16th, 1957 game. And I would be remiss not to mention that the week leading up to the game, the issue of the Sports Illustrated featured Oklahoma running back Clendon Thomas on the cover with the feature story called 
why Oklahoma is unbeatable. So needless to say, the Irish were deemed 19-point underdogs for the game. 19 points. Which, when looking at all the information the odds makers had on hand, it still feels very appropriate. But, of course, what was missing was the incalculable factor. The spirit of Notre Dame. Alright, so what happened with the game? The Irish won the coin toss and elected to receive. They were quickly stifled by the Sooner defense and were forced to punt on the opening possession. The 62,000 fans on hand in Norman created a near-deafening atmosphere as it was a foregone conclusion that their boys were going to win this football game. So that opening drive was actually indicative of the entire first quarter. The teams dug their heels in, played tough-nosed defense, and traded punts all throughout that first stanza. So Oklahoma has the ball as the second quarter begins. Sooner's quarterback Carl Dodd dropped back to pass, and he was quickly rushed by Dick Royer of the Irish, who forced a fumble when he popped him, actually. Dodd showed a wherewithal that you often don't see in these situations, and he actually temporarily recovered his own fumble, but then the ball kind of squirted out and he fumbled again. And it was Nick Pietrasante of the Irish who came up with the football. So a word about Pietrasante. I, I knew him as a fullback, and I'll cop to the fact that I had no clue he actually did anything else, but he would be named a first-team All-American after the 1958 season. Listen to these season stats, though. He led the team in rushing with 449 yards with a 5 yards per carry average. He was the team's primary punter, and he averaged nearly 40 yards a kick. And on defense, he also logged 37 tackles, five passes broken up, and two fumbles recovered. So, man, that's some good stuff. Anyway, he recovered the fumble, and it was the Irish ball at midfield. So the Irish, with the help of Pietro Sante and halfback Dick Lynch, actually drove all the way down to the Oklahoma three-yard line. But the Sooners hadn't won 47 straight games just with their good looks, Four straight Irish plunges were stopped, and the Sooners took over on what was called their one-foot line. So the Sooners throw up a epic goal line stand. And the rest of the second quarter ended in a stalemate, 0-0 zero to zero, heading into the locker room. And I will say, there is a nice short YouTube video from when Notre Dame did their top moments to celebrate their 125th anniversary. So though they didn't score in the second quarter, if you happen to look at this video, you got to peep the Irish's beautifully executed fake field goal. Though their next play was an intercepted pass. Hey, the fake field goal was absolutely beautiful. But according to the school paper, quote, Throughout the third quarter, the two teams resumed their punting duel. In the third quarter, Oklahoma kickers rolled the ball dead within the Notre Dame 10-yard line four times. End quote. So as we roll into the fourth quarter, it is still 0-0. Zero to zero. And I'm not sure what the Sooners or their fans were thinking at this time, but they were probably getting a mite nervous. The Irish were biding their time and waiting for their opportunity to pounce. A few minutes into the fourth quarter, the Sooners punted again to the Irish. However, 
instead of getting pinned inside their own 10-yard line again, this punt rolled into the end zone for a touchback, giving the Irish the ball at the 20-yard line. Now, that may sound minor, but the extra yards to start may have given the Irish just the juice they were looking for. For 11 straight plays, the Irish ran the ball right at the Sooner defense methodically picking up about five yards per carry. Led by the backfield of Pietrasante, Lynch, and Frank Reynolds, the Irish drove all the way down to the Sooner 25-yard line. The Irish kept grinding and grinding the ball closer and closer to the Sooner goal line, and they survived a scare when quarterback Bob Williams fumbled a ball. Fortunately, he quickly pounced on just as a quick note, there are two Bob Williamses who played quarterback for the Irish around this time. The first was a Leahy lad who finished fifth in the Heisman voting the same year his teammate Leon Hart won it. This was a different Bob Williams, though ironically both again were quarterbacks who played for Notre Dame and they were both drafted by the Chicago Bears. So, the Irish pound the ball all the way down to the Sooner three-yard line again, and it's fourth and goal. Brennan decides just to go for the damn touchdown rather than the field goal. He explained after the game, quote, we decided at the half to go all the way. We were afraid Oklahoma could go all the way anytime, and we felt that it would take a touchdown to win, end quote. So the Irish lined up in their classic T formation. This was Frank Leahy's formation for sure, one which Terry Brennan took heavy part in. So for some quick chalk talk here, there are no wide receivers in the T formation. You have your five down offensive linemen, along with two tight ends, one outside each tackle, your quarterback, and three men in the backfield in a straight line. So the quarterback and the three running backs make an approximate shape of a T. So alas, the T formation. So Lynch is playing right halfback, Pietrasante is playing fullback and in the middle, so he's standing directly behind Bob Williams. And then Reynolds is lined up as the left halfback. So again, these three men are standing not quite shoulder to shoulder, but you know maybe a, about a foot apart from each other. So Williams takes the snap, and it's a quick pitch right to Dick Lynch. Again, fourth and three, zero to zero. Now Lynch beats the defensive end to the edge, but he looked absolutely dead in the water. As Carl Dodd, who also played defensive end and linebacker, had sniffed out the play perfectly and took a perfect angle to stop Lynch in his tracks. And he would have. But Pietrasante threw a beautiful, and I mean beautiful, open field cut block on Dodd which allowed Lynch to score untouched from the three-yard line. Touchdown, Irish. After a successful extra point, the score stood 7-0 with three minutes and 50 seconds left to play. I have watched that particular play countless times now, and I know Lynch gets the glory for finding the pay dirt, but my goodness, Nick Pietrasante did God's work on this play. So if you get a chance, give the play a view on YouTube. Pietrasante is number 49. Just an absolutely awesome cut block, which again allowed Lynch to just scamper in completely untouched and made it look so easy. But 
Even Oklahoma running back Clendon Thomas, again, your SI cover boy for the week, had to give props to the effort 55 years later in an article from Tulsa World when he said, quote, Pietrasante blocked Carl Dodd on the corner and Dick Lynch scored. I can vividly remember the guys. Pietrasante put a whale of a block on Carl, or they wouldn't have gotten in. I put that in replay mode and play it over and over again, as if I can get a different result, end quote. But Oklahoma wasn't going to just roll over. In fact, Thomas added that, quote, I never thought we would lose. Even then, I thought we'd come back and score in those last couple minutes, end quote. That was from a 2012 story from ESPN. Oklahoma drove all the way down to about the 25-yard line, and one final pass was intercepted in the end zone. The Irish came out in victory formation to kneel to end the ball game. After the clock read all zeros, folks remember sitting in the stadium in absolute stunned silence. According to the ESPN story, public address announcer Jack Ogle finally broke that silence by telling the crowd to stand up and give these boys a big hand for all the memories. And in unison they did. Then they sat back down and some were even reputedly in tears. Even after Ogle later proclaimed to, quote, come back next Saturday, folks, and that's when the new string starts, end quote, many simply remained in the stands, their eyes fixated on the field, like they could not believe what they had just witnessed. So Notre Dame had done the unthinkable, defeating the Oklahoma Sooners to finally end their long winning streak. This game has entered Notre Dame lore, but this episode is really important because it explains the context around the game. It's easy to look at this game in a vacuum, but this Notre Dame team was not a world-beating team full of Leahy lads. It was a scrappy bunch of players who never quit, what though the odds were great or small. But yeah, you know what? I guess they did have a Leahy lad as head coach. Also of note, though the Irish snapped the Sooners' long winning streak, they also ended another one. They handed the Sooners their first shutout loss in 123 games, which is pretty amazing. So I saw this in the school paper, and I actually kind of found it funny as well. As Notre Dame were boarding their buses to head to the airport to go home, the last thing many of the guys saw was a sign held up by Oklahoma fans that said, Yankees, go home. <laughs> so the Irish would finish the season 7-3. and three. So a pretty drastic five-win turnaround from the season before. Unfortunately for Terry Brennan, his tenure as Irish coach ran out sooner than anyone had hoped or expected. After a 6-4 and four finish to the 1958 season, he was fired on Christmas Eve 1958. He had gone 32-18 and 18 during his five seasons as head coach. And he was actually fired when he refused to resign. He didn't want to resign because he didn't want his players to think he was abandoning them by resigning. Though Brennan wasn't and really isn't considered a classically successful Notre Dame coach, he certainly did far better than his successors 
So the next head coach in the line was actually another guy who played football at Notre Dame, and it was actually a South Bend native, and that was Joe Kuharik. And he led the team the next four seasons, and they went 17-23. and 23. Hugh DeVore replaced Kuharik and went 2-7. and seven. DeVore was also a former Notre Dame player like Kuharik, and he coached the 2-7 and seven campaign in 1963. So, again, 17-23 and 23 under Kuharik and 2-7 and seven under DeVore. Suddenly, that 32-18 doesn't look so bad, especially when you consider eight of those losses came in one single season. But, needless to say, after DeVore, a guy by the name of Ara Parsegian was hired, and I suppose then, the rest is history. But back to the point I was trying to make, I guess, though Brennan wasn't wildly successful and incredibly young to hold the post, he did have what many called then, and still call now, the perfectly coached game. That November 16, 1957, which is exactly what it took to knock off those Sooners. Rest in peace, Coach Brennan. I'll be right back. All right, that was a great time, and I hope you had a good time as well. That is a game again that I tried to stress is one of those games that is talked about a lot and in like, you know, all those greatest Notre Dame games in history lists. However, the game is great and I'm glad we got a chance to dig in and really learn more about it. But if you look at the context of that game, the whole situation with the Terry Brennan era, the season that they had before, and the fact that, boy, they really, really needed that win. Uh, and the fact that they got it based on that game. Again, that has been called a perfectly coached game. I think that is just an incredible story, especially when you consider all of the moving parts. So thank you very much for sticking around and hearing more about it. And speaking of sticking around, I have to say thank you again. The show just surpassed over 10,000 episode downloads, which I am thrilled and also very humbled by. Um, I started again this show and I recorded that very first episode about Angelo Bertelli knowing virtually nothing about podcasting, uh, knowing that I did have a passion for Notre Dame and a very strong passion for history. But that first episode, I believe that first month, I think maybe 17 or 18 people listened to it, if memory serves. And the fact that the show has grown to where it is today, again, we have people tuning in every single day from all over the world. It's, again, very, very humbling and thrilling, but also a testament to this awesome fandom we have for the University of Notre Dame and her football team. I am really happy to be able to do this, particularly over the off-season. The off-season can feel very long, and so I feel like it's things like this that really help bide our time. But there is a lot of excitement brewing around the program, and I am very excited to tackle that with a special guest co-host again next episode. So if you want to interact with the show, please visit facebook.com slash onward to victory podcast. That's where most of the show updates are kind of 
funneled through. And I love to hear any feedback from the about the show. Pardon me on that. Also, if you want to just send an email, onward to victory podcast at gmail.com. If you are interested in donating to the show and becoming a consensus all-American and get recognized in the ranks of the consensus all-Americans, please visit paypal.me slash onward to victory or patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast. Whether it's a one-time donation or an ongoing monthly donation, please know that your support is greatly and graciously appreciated doesn't matter if it's a large donation, a small donation, all of it helps. And so our current consensus All-Americans include Mr. Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, Weston Painter of Fort Wayne, Indiana, and my pal Will Fuller from Redondo Beach, California. Now, of course, if that name rings a bell, that is because Will is the author of The Forever Year and was a one-time guest on the show. Maybe we'll have him back here soon. That'd be really fun. But we talked a lot about George Gipp, and I think, again, that is a way that George Gipp has not been discussed. So if you haven't heard it, go back and listen to that particular episode. And man, go buy Will's book, again, called The Forever Year. It's a historical fiction book about George Gipp and his relationship over the last year of his life with a woman named Iris Trapier. It is absolutely fantastic. As I've kind of said a couple times, I'm a little bit smitten with it. I'm actually probably going to reread it here in the coming weeks. But again, it's called Forever Year. So make sure you look into that as well. And I would be so remiss not to mention that some of the largest support this over the past year really has come from WCScreens.com. My pal Tony and the rest of his team. So there's a lot of exciting things that are in the works for 2022. And a large part of that is because of the support WCScreens.com gives this show. So check them out. WCScreens.com for all your screen printing and embroidery needs. And finally, thank you to my pal Joseph Rakish, whose song, Knut Rockney, serves as the show's theme song. It's that toe tapper you heard at the very beginning of the show. Go to Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, Apple Music, however it is that you digest your tunes and give Knut Rockney by my pal Joseph Rakish a few spins. Well, until next time, I had better just go ahead and sew this one up. This has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go. Irish.